Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hello, everyone. I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. Each week, we talk about craft beer business, pop culture, and whatever else is on our minds. I'm here with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Our first guest is an environmental engineer, an MIT grad, and one of the most respected brewers in our industry. In 2016, along with friend, co-worker, and fellow MIT grad, Ricardo Petroni, he founded Equilibrium Brewery in Middletown, New York. They set out to meld together their two passions, science and beer, and to make beer that they love to drink. The results have been stunning. Their beers have garnered awards, consistently high ratings on their beer rating sites, and accolades in the craft beer media. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Peter Oates. Uh, just for everybody out there, Pete is joining us from his uh, his beautiful home up in uh, Lake Wanasink. So he is surrounded by nature. So if you hear any uh, birds or anything, he is uh, enjoying the great outdoors. How you doing, Pete? I'm good, guys. Good to see you. Me, me and my uh, chirpy friends are out here. <laughs> so I, I would like to get into our, our first question here. Sure. What was your first experience to craft beer? I mean... I'm not going to assume at MIT you were crushing PBRs and, and eating pizza, you know, working long hours in the lab. I mean, what was your first exposure to craft beer? Uh, my first exposure to craft beer was uh, a can of Hetty Topper. I was oh. at a restaurant in uh, Ellenville, New York, and I was drinking like we were drinking a lot of weird beers growing up as, you know, a little bit before 21 and before that. But like I remember getting just like some uh, Sam Adams Nut Brown and they were kind of interesting. But Hetty Topper was the beer that kind of pushed me over the edge and I was like, wait a minute, I thought beer tasted like Bush Light and Natty Light and now all of a sudden I'm getting all this mango and pineapple and there's this bitterness and I want another one and then they told me, you can't have another one. You have to go drive 12 hours, stand in a line for four hours and then you can get some and that's sort of, I think, uh, what introduced me to the craft beer culture. Right. And I kind of was out there in Vermont, uh, at lines and alchemist. And I started meeting all these people and I was realizing like how much I just really loved this scene and this feeling and meeting these new people and trying all these interesting beers and having a little bit of an excuse to, to drink beer on a Saturday morning. Uh, oh, okay. and I was kind of like, this is, this is really cool. And we don't really have this in upstate New York. And that's kind of what introduced me to craft beer and made me think like, man, this is such a cool experience. I want to share this with other people who don't know about it. Right. I mean, I mean, so basically the story goes that you guys were taking these road trips to Vermont to buy craft beer, albeit that it was Hetty Topper. Uh, I've been in that same experience going to Waterbury and standing in those lines, hoping to get like a case and then leave. And then as the experience went, it was like you were vying to try to get to a drop. Well, I was obviously up there for skiing, but you're vying to try to get to the the co-op just in time when they do the drop to be in line to, yeah. to pick up a four pack. You know what I mean? So you're racing to do all this. You're, you're driving up to Vermont. And then Ricardo suggested that maybe home brewing might be a better avenue like to to start filling that beer need. Is, is that kind of how it goes? Yeah, so I have a I have a very strong background um, in, in water chemistry. I have a, a doctorate from MIT in, in hydrology. And I was actually working on a project for the Hudson River to try to remediate uh, the river around New York City. And uh, one of the guys at the engineering firms, my co-founder, uh, said, hey, you're so good at water chemistry and you're really good at taking bad stuff out of the water. What if you put good stuff <laughs> into the water and, you know, you like beer? This seems like a natural, like, fusion of these two concepts. Right. And you don't have to drive 12 hours every weekend. <laughs> And so I started building a, a homebrew system in my house. Um, we were doing uh, six batches a day, which was pretty nuts. Oh, my gosh. Uh, okay. We went through about two or three stoves. <laughs> I had probably five or six uh, fridges in the, in the basement controlling the, uh, the fermentation temperature. And uh, I had a very good rapport with the local uh, hotel. 
Oh boy. For when my girlfriend said, I'm not staying here until you clean this shit up. Oh, oh nice. Am I allowed to curse? I'm, no, I'm absolutely. No yeah. We're, hey, we're on serious. Okay. Yeah. It's okay, dude. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> yes. So like we had it, we had a credit card on file when, when I'm like, Oh my God, I, I fused the propane on the stove open. Now the house is going to flood with propane for a while until oh, I gosh. fix this. Oh gosh. And she'd like, well, you know where I'm going to be. And she'd go out to the hotel and She'd be like, let me know when my feet don't stick to the floor and I'll, I'll come back. And I was like, all right, I'll try to figure this out a little bit better. That's amazing. So you actually set it up all yourself. I mean, obviously, with, with your background and your skills, you were able to do all that. So at, at the same time when all this is going down, I mean, and now at what point did you go? You've got the whole house set up basically as a brewery. At what point did you say, OK, we need to build a brick and mortar? So this was sort of my my co-founder's proposal and the way we kind of fell into a rhythm and what happened is he was handling more of the, the business plan down. And, and he was like, uh, you work on figuring out how to make beer. Cause I don't have any formal training in the beer world. Like I didn't come from another brewery and, and he was kind of like, I have this building, come check it out. And we were, we went down there and the city of Middletown was really gracious and they, they sold it to us for a really, uh, really good price. Super helpful in getting us going. And we were like, all right, let's, let's do it. I mean, the, the original business plan was to just do distribution of, of, uh, cakes. That was the original business plan. Oh, okay. okay. And, uh, you know, it didn't go that way. <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, it, it's hard. I think it's different in this market. I mean, we started out that way as well, where in the beginning, I mean, it was 90% draft and 10% package. Like, but package for us back then was bottling, you know, we would do limited release, you know, barrel aged beers or, fruited sour such as dfpf or miami madness and it just kind of morphed into this animal of what this massive package game has become where you know it's you get a much further reach in the market i mean globally you know nationally whatever with package than you do with with draft at least in you know from what we've seen on our end so i can understand like the plan being you started with draft but it definitely changes along the way yeah i mean as soon as like you know, we didn't really have um, plans to try to drive like this on-site line line share model. It just sort of happened, right? Like we sent out a, a few sixdols. Uh, we we ended up bringing my my homebrew to uh, CBG New York and ended up talking to the the head guys there, and they all were kind of like blown away by it. And they're like, "All right, we're going to put you in all the hot accounts. Like you're going to be pouring next to like Hill Farmstead." Uh, you know, some of the other big boys at the time, I think Trillium might've been on some of the draft lines. And so they, they put us there and their response was kind of like overwhelming. We'd send out some beer to like Dechico's and I, I know the owner of Dechico's is a buddy of mine. And he's like sending out messages like, yo, there's like 300 people lined up outside for crawlers of your beer. Like what is going on? And we're like, we don't really know. This is kind of nuts to us. And then as soon as we were able to start um, we didn't even have a canning line when we opened because we were just going to do kegs. And then we were like, oh, my God, like, we need to start canning. And, you know, <laughs> Ricardo and I didn't really have a lot of money at that point. And we're like, all right, we're going to find money somewhere and, like, figure out how to get a canning <laughs> line. And then we started canning. And, you know, we saw that sort of weird Saturday morning phenomenon of, like, there's, like, hundreds of people lined up outside to, to get this stuff. And, and we were just sort of blown away by the response. Right. And, and the lines forming in Middleton probably were definitely a little bit of a, of a shock. So on, on your website, it basically says that you guys consider yourself an experimental brewery with emphasis on research and exploration. What does that mean exactly for everybody out there? So for, I think a really good example, we've been, you know, we're, we're probably most well known for our, our hazy, uh, hoppy beers. Um, Right now, this week, after, you know, we started doing commercial batches in 2015, six years later, right. uh, we're trying with many of our beers right now, just a new dry hop technique that we developed. Like, so our, we have a series called D-Hop, which actually, and here, here's where people are going to fall asleep. It stands for uh, the partial derivative of the change in hops normalized to the change in beer, which means like if you change the hop, I mean, how does the beer change? Right. And so we had a batch recently called uh, D-Hop 34 where we, we tweaked the process and uh, we were kind of blown away with the results. And so we're actually, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but we're going to do it to like MC Square. Like that's our baby. That's Strangers in the Morning. Right. And we're changing how we're hopping MC Square. The beer that we've done, it's our flagship. You know, people have tattoos of it and it's right. like, oh, let's just change how we hop that. I mean, to see if you can derive 
an end result of a better product overall. I mean, that's the idea. Yeah, like yeah. How, how do you give a, a better flavor profile in the glass, right? All the all the stuff you can do at various stages in the process doesn't matter unless it shows up in people's glasses. Right, so that's where you're really your emphasis is on is research and exploration to create these these end result of, of greater product in the end. I mean, I, I completely understand it. So that is uh, definitely why you guys are focused on research and you know exploration. I know you guys started with and are very well known for your hazy IPAs, your, you know, the big juicy New England style IPAs. Um, you have now also moved into sours and stouts. What, what are, what's something that you're brewing today that you are experimenting on now for the future? I mean, like I definitely know between our collaborations, you, are you brewing more stouts? Are you brewing more sours? I mean, I think you also did a beer with, uh, the, um, with Avery keeping together, right? Um, I think you guys did a wild, uh, wild beer with her. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to start with the stouts, one, it's your guys's fault. Our stout program blew up with Life After <laughs> Death Star. Um, and and this is one of these things where I only have sort of minimal experience, but I'm fortunate enough to be able to talk to some of the really great stout brewers in, in the game, and we're just getting more interested in, in aging beers longer and longer, which sounds really simple. But every time we're like, we try uh, a beer that's like two years in the barrel or two plus years in the barrel, like, you know what, it matters. And this is actually really good. And we, we had our first beer called, um, we did with uh, Brandon Tolbert out of Short Throw Brewing, uh, Swiss Bliss Grand Royale, which was a beer that had an extra year in, in the barrel. And we were like, oh my God, like this is really amazing. It doesn't make a, <laughs> a ton of sense business-wise, um, but you know, to, to answer like what stout are we really excited about right now? It's it's got to be Lads Grand Royale. I mean, right. we, we do have another barrel Lads that we're just letting go, and right. you know we'll we'll see we'll see where it goes. Uh, the beer with Avery, I'm super excited about. We spent a lot of time with our um, trying to dial in our, our farmhouse process. Like we very much do not throw a bunch of mixed bugs in in wort and see what happens. It's very sort of calculated and controlled. And how we, we do it to try to hit a, a gentle um, acid profile. Right. You know, and probably a lot of this is like Ryan and I are, you know, we're, we're not 21 anymore. And we're like, you know, I can't drink four bottles of, of this sour that's super, super sour. No, it's, it's so, almost impossible. <laughs> so we've, we've been trying to like really make a refined and, and elegant beer. Um, you know, I, I would say we definitely get some inspiration from that from Hill Farmstead. Sean has done an amazing job of just having this this balanced, elegant acid profile, it's something that always struck me of like, wow, this is just such a, like Arthur to me is like one of the, the goat farmhouses of all time. Absolutely. And it's just like, how do you make a beer that's just so elegant and reproducible? Right. Because that's the tricky thing with mixed culture, right, is if you just throw a bunch of bugs in, are you going to get the same thing again? Right. So that, that can be a good or a bad thing depending on how you look at it. Um, we want to be able to control when we want it to be reproducible and also when we want it to let go and get kind of, you know, wild for lack of a better word. Um, so we, we started refining that base. And um, when we built out the new facility, we put in uh, three fooders for mixed cultures. And one of my, my favorite people and one of probably the best uh, brewers in the world, especially for the style, is Avery Swanson from um, her, her new label. And so I was like, hey, would you work with us on this? Because you're an expert. We're kind of making this stuff up. And she was like, yeah. Well, and so we've, awesome. we have a, a fooder that we're doing a Solera blend. So we're going to, it's a 40 barrel fooder. We pull out 20, package it, push in a fresh 20. And then every batch will have like a different distribution of, I call it memory packets. Like, so different time periods. Right. And so every batch will be, be different. So That's awesome. I'm pretty excited That's about awesome. that. So Solera basically being where you start initially with a batch of beer or they do Solera wine style where you start with an initial batch, you take some out which has been aged for a certain amount of time, and then you put fresh new beer, wine, whatever it is, into that same barrel mixed with the old, and you keep pulling off and adding new and keep pulling off and adding new. It's just, it's it's been done for a very, very long time, but it is, it is a certain style of aging liquid that is, uh, it's very proficient. I think it's a, it's a great expression on whatever it might be that you're aging in it. Um, yeah, I think it started with like sherry in the day, right? There's, right. Yes. I yes. think a sherry process. Yes, it did. Yeah. Um, one thing that we're doing 
that I think is kind of cool that I, I don't know if people have done before, but we're doing it with a, a stout. Really? So we have a port butt, which is, you know, the double the size of a bourbon barrel. Right. And so every year we're going to pull one barrel out and then take something that's been in another barrel and push it back in and keep oh. blending that stout until that's it either, amazing. you know, becomes the most magical project or gets oxidized and we have to dump it or <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, that's, that's what experimentation is all about. I mean, um, so explain to me. So you have your original facility. How many barrels of beer are you doing out of the original facility? And now you have a second facility. How many barrels are you doing now? I mean, where did you guys start at? Like, how many barrels a year were you doing out of the original one? So we, I, I think we started a lot bigger than most people. Uh, and that's because we ran out a pretty serious business model and said, if we're not at like, I forget exactly what it was, but it was like 2,000 or 2,500 barrels, we can't be profitable. We right. can't make money. We can't pay people's salaries. And we can't, you know, have a successful business if we start at, you know, on a three barrel system and try to have a little brew pub. We ran the numbers and said, this doesn't seem like it's going to be successful. So we started at around 2,000 to 2,500 barrels. And then Henry Street, our original location, we can probably hit 3,000 to 3,500 barrels. Nice. Um, with the new facility with South Street and Henry, because we still brew out of the original place, uh, like this year, we'll probably be at about 15,000 barrels. Oh, wow. Wow. And now you're not obviously only in Middletown, but where is your scope now? I mean, where's your, because now you're obviously in distribution as well. What, what kind of scope are you guys in now as far as distribution game goes? So I, I think we have, you know, I think our scope is basically to, is to look and see where, where this industry grows and where the, the craft beer landscape goes because everything's changed. Right. Um, you know, we, before the pandemic, we were very much driven by Saturday crowds and then all of a sudden crowds were killing people and, and causing spread of a disease. And so right. that wasn't a good business model. And so I, I think right now, like we do a fair amount of, of traffic on site still, we still have the, the direct to consumer shipping. Um, so we send out a lot of beer in boxes. Like we have a dedicated, um, basically fulfillment center and in the brewery now just for packaging beers. And then, you know, we, we do do a fair amount of distribution too, through distribution channels. You know, I think they're, they were never really part of our ecosystem before, but I think that's, it's really a big part of it now. And that's just the way craft beer is, is going for a place that's moving, you know, more than a few thousand barrels. It's just what it is. Yeah, I definitely have seen, we've definitely seen a shift in the overall market. And as far as that goes, I mean, we, we basically had to redevelop our business model, I think three times during the pandemic and even coming out of the pandemic now, it's not necessarily going back to what it was in 2019. I mean, I think we would like, you know, we still get the on-site, you know, tap room presence and whatnot. I mean, I don't know if we're still at the point to where we could go, hey, we're going to have a limited release on-site only. Like, I don't know if that would, would work again. It might. I mean, who knows at this point. But what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think we're ready to kind of move back towards that? Or do you think that is far gone? So we, I, I think that, you know, right along the lines of with what you're saying that I think we're going to kind of have a hybrid business model where there's going to be some percentage of our volume that is like it used to be. And for example, we did a BA Graceland with a civil society, um, BA stout. It was literally out of one barrel. We didn't have a ton of bottles and we're kind of struggling internally to figure out like how much this we put on the Eventbrite sales, but we still want to make sure our locals get it and we want to get people to come hang out in this beautiful space we built. And so we put a little bit of it on, on Eventbrite and then we kept a little of it back on site because we had a little of it to start with. And I, I think it was, it, was, it was pretty cool. Like we had, you know, 50, 60 people show up early and they were cracking beers and they were sharing, which is something that, uh, that I really love personally. And it's actually very important to me as a brewmaster to you know, try all these new beers that people are excited about. Of and it's course, like, you absolutely. know, actually you've never heard of this brewery or this flavor profile is amazing. What is going on here? Maybe this is someone we want to try to work with. And we're excited about this, you know, even a new style of beer people are creating. Right. So it's a lot of like people just bringing amazing beers to you to try. And it's super fun. You get to meet all these great people. So it hits like, it checks a lot of the right boxes right. Uh, in terms yeah. of being fun. I can make sense of it from a business perspective because it's a whole bunch of research just trying these new beers and, and hearing about these new breweries that like, I don't feel like I was completely shut off or enclosed during the pandemic, but it was definitely different than being 
on like the event circuit like we were for years before the pandemic. Oh, of course, of course. And I mean, I'm glad to start to see the crowds just start to come back, obviously in a safe manner. But, you know, I think, like you said, it's a very important part of the overall culture and o- the overall business that we have to, yeah. you know, you know, have those people around and, and those lines and share that experience with other people. And it also, like you said, helps us realize what else is out there as far as beer goes and helps us expand our beer game and, and so on and so forth. Um, here's here's my last question for you, brother. What is next for you guys in EQ's world? What what do you guys what's on the horizon for you? What's the next big thing? What's the next big experiment? Do we have another brewery coming? You know, what what's next for you? I think honestly, and this may not be as exciting as you're hoping, but <laughs> you know, we we, we want to stabilize after what we all just went through. We we right. wanna figure out where craft beer is going. We wanna sort of optimize our on site experience. We wanna get the barbecue program as efficient as possible. We want to make sure our staff is, is happy with what happened because everybody's went through a pretty wild 15 plus months. Um, I think things that have changed a little bit for, for me and equilibrium is we're not going to do the event circuit. Like we used to, like we used to travel every week and go to a new festival. We'll, we'll still do, you know, obviously like Wake Fest, right. we'll still do some of the festivals, but we, we don't have the, we were getting two spreads in, honestly. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And so I also want to do a lot of focus on just sort of ingredients. Right. Like spending more time uh, with the hop farmers, getting to know them, getting to know their process, getting to know the lots that I think MC Squared should come from, and really getting the right ingredients, getting to know like uh, some of the distilleries a little bit better to try to get really good barrels, uh, working a little bit more with some of the producers in the Hudson Valley because we have a really cool agriculture scene out here. Oh, it's amazing. And yeah. we got to know it a little bit, but I think we can get to know it better. Okay. So I think a lot of it's on the ingredient okay. side. Um, okay. And also like doing things like making our pilsners as good as possible. Oh, yeah, it's more it's, so it's going to be more of a concentration on improving where you're at now to create, you know, the best product you can and not so much focus on expanding, expanding, expanding. It's now more bringing it back in-house and concentrating on what you already have. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, I, I do think to follow back on a, another question, like, well, I, I do really love, and I think we do have this sort of hybrid business model. I do actually think it's cool too, to get like MC squared to more draft accounts right. that have never had it Okay, and let people try this, this beer a little more often. You know, there's some talks of like, do we want to open another tap room? We've had that talk for like three or four years. And right. we're still really coming out of the South Street build out. And I, I think that we're just going to pay attention to what's happening right now. Like what, what is, what does the beer community look like? What, what's happened to it? What's what did COVID do? Right. It's changed. So, so where, it's incredibly where are we at dynamic. Now? Okay. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate your time, Pete. I mean, uh, it means yeah. a lot. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, I, Pete. I, I really appreciate it. All right. Bye guys. Stay well. Talk to you soon. You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest is an award-winning chef, restaurateur, daytime Emmy-winning television host, best-selling author, barbecue guru, and proud Clevelander. He appears on several Food Network shows, including Simon's Dinner's Cooking Out and Barbecue Brawl, which airs with new episodes on Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. So, welcome to the Beer Hour, Michael Simon. How you doing? I'm doing great. No complaints. That's good to hear. Uh, we're joined by my uh, co-host here, uh, Maria Cabre. Hi. So, I do have to, before we start, really, I have to share something that when we sat down about four months ago to start conceptualizing this whole show for SiriusXM, I brought up your name as one of the guests I would love to have on the show if it ever would have come to fruition, which it has now. <laughs> and and you're actually on the show. This is amazing. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I, you know, you're making me blush. My whole head's going to turn red. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into some beer talk, uh, I kind of want to take it back to the beginning with you. Um, you often talk about learning how to cook from your mom and your grandmother and I read that your culinary career started at a pizzeria. At what moment did you realize that cooking was not only something fun to do, but something you wanted to make a career out of? You know, it, for me, it was, it was, I'm a pretty ADD kid. Um, 
And, you know, which I, I think a lot of people in the restaurant business are, you know, it's like the land of misfit toys a little bit. Um, and I wasn't a great student and, and was a, a pretty good athlete and ended up getting some kind of couple brutal injuries that cut my wrestling world short a little bit. So I had to start working in restaurants to, well, I had to start working to help pay for college. I, you know, I come from a middle-class family. Dad worked at Ford. Um, you know, grandpa was a pipe fitter. And, and so I started working in restaurants and I'm like, wow, man, this is so like, it just clicked for me right away. Like the, the minute I started doing it, I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. So I was, well, I was a junior in high school then. So 17 years old, 16 years old. And so did that for a little bit. And, and after I graduated high school, I, you know, I, I said to my dad that, you know, I, I think I like, I, I think I want to go to culinary school. Now you have to, this is 1987. Okay. You know, there was really no such thing as celebrity chef at the time. No, no, um, no. Right. You know, my, my grandpa was a tradesman. My dad started out as a tradesman and they, you know, they wanted me to go to college. Um, and so my dad said, no, you know, he just basically said not an option. Um, so I went to Cleveland state and, you know, I'm like, all right, I'll try to see if I can wrestle again, see if my arm holds up. So, went to Cleveland state and my first quarter semester, whatever Cleveland state, I got a 0.2 GPA. Oh, um, <laughs> not okay. a two, not even a two point of 0.2. So at, at that point, my mom, my Greek Sicilian mother kind of stepped in and she's like, obviously he's not good at this. So like <laughs> she convinced my dad that culinary school wasn't a terrible option. So, um, by that point I, I I'd worked about two years in the restaurant business and, um, had family in the restaurant business and just, I just loved it. And so I, I applied at CIA, I get in and I, I get there and, and, you know, at CIA back then, most of the students were a bit older than me at the time. Um, you know, there were people that worked in restaurants for a long time or went to college and decided that, you know, this, maybe this was where they wanted to go. So I was pretty young. Um, and I remember my father drove me up there and, you know, drops me off the dorm. We like unpack my junk and, and uh, he's like, I'll see you in a week. And I'm thinking, shit, what, you know, <laughs> we, we already have a break in a week. You know, yeah. I'm in Hyde Park, New York. Well, why are you going to see me in a week? You're going to come visit? Like, that's weird. And he's like, no, you're, you're going to last about a week here. Ooh, and I'm like, okay. No, I'm, I'm giving my dad a lot of, my dad's fantastic, by the way. I'm, I'm painting <laughs> him maybe to be a little rougher than he is. But he just didn't think it was going to work. Um, and I, I graduated at the top of my class and, and, you know, it just, it, like I said, it just, I think everybody in life, if you find the right thing, it clicks for you and, and, and the food world just clicked for me. And, and I, I, I always loved food, you know, being a wrestler my whole life, you were always cutting weight so you right. could never eat food. So, and then I have a Greek Sicilian mother who all she does is cook. So like, She's just trying uh, to feed you all the time. For food was at a very high level. I was like, <laughs> "Oh my god, I gotta, I gotta walk by the lasagna again." Like, what is this? Like some kind of weird torture that people do? Exactly. Um, so, it, like, it clicked for me. I, I was lucky that I had a good palate. I was always very artistic and creative, um, you know, which which fell into that world also. Um, that's, yeah, and I just i I hit the ground running, and I really never looked back. Yeah, that's that's awesome, though. When you graduated the CIA, how long was it before you opened Lola? And since we're on the business channel, how did you go about financing it and, and getting that up and running? So I, I graduated in, um, in the end of 89 or early 90. And then uh, I was working in Manhattan a little bit at the time on weekends. So I worked a little bit more in Manhattan. Then I moved back to Cleveland shortly after that. And the, the first restaurant job I took was at a restaurant called uh, Players. A little Italian restaurant in, in Lakewood, which is a suburb of Cleveland. So, because I was still a punk, really, I I was I graduated from CIA and I moved in with my, all my buddies were still in college because it was an associate's degree, you know. Right. So, I graduated in two years; they were still in school. So, I moved in with all my buddies at Kent State and then took a job in Lakewood. So, I basically drove forty five minutes back and forth to work every day at this great little Italian restaurant um, and. As fate would have it, I I was a, I got took a job as a cook there. You know, I had a couple like sous chef offers or you know some management offers out of school, but they were at you know hotels and, and places that I didn't think I wanted to be. I okay. I take a job at this little 
Italian place. I was hired as a line cook for eight bucks an hour. You know, my, my dad was very excited about that. Like I paid for half of school. He paid for the other half. Okay. Back then I think culinary was about 17 grand a year. It's a lot more now, but then he's like, okay, so you, you go to college, become a chef. <laughs> which I didn't want you to do now. Suddenly you're passionate. So you don't want to take the job that, that you know, pays you, you know, $32,000 a year. Instead, you're going to take the job that pays you $8 an hour. You know, it's like, yeah, you really, you, you're special, you know? So I'm like, so I take this job because I really like the chef there. And I, I thought it had a lot of potential. And, and then I was a cook, the, the person who ran the front of the house there and ran the wine program was my now wife, Liz. Oh, okay. Um, so we met there. I spent about two years there. I got promoted to sous chef, which was as high as you could go there because the owner was the chef. Oh. Um, and then a, a restaurateur in Cleveland named Carl Quagliata, who was a, wasn't as a pretty famous Cleveland restaurateur, um, was opening up a new restaurant called Piccolo Mondo. And he hired me as the sous chef about a week before the restaurant opened. The chef had a, a nervous breakdown and Carl said, well, you're going to be the chef. And I'm like, well, chef of what? And he's like, chef of this <laughs> restaurant. I wasn't ready. I wasn't equipped yet to be the chef, but I took the job and the restaurant got a lot of press. Um, I was in way over my head from, a management standpoint, but okay. like not from necessarily a food standpoint. So we got the food down pretty good. And then the manager there was a childhood friend of mine named Doug Petkovic, who then he's mine and Liz's other partner. So uh, Liz and then Doug and I all worked together. And then then I took a, a, a job at a restaurant called Caxon Cafe, where I was the executive chef. It was a little 40 seater. This is like, 1995 right um and i got named the hottest chef in cleveland i got named the best restaurant in cleveland it just got tons and tons of, of local press, press. and yeah. then it started getting national attention which had never really happened before in cleveland and i was there for a couple years and then in, in 1997 so roughly seven years after i graduated from the cia liz and i opened lola together um, Doug kind of helped us out in the beginning because we, it wasn't a big enough project to really have three partners. So Doug helped us out in the beginning. And then when we opened our second place, Doug came aboard as a partner. Um, but for financing for that, Liz, Liz and I had, this is in 1997, Liz and I had like $20,000 saved. Wow. Um, my father gave us $65,000, which oh. for him was like an, an, an enormous amount of money. Of course. My yeah. grandfather gave us 50000 Um, So we're like 130000 135000 And then one of my friend's father, who wasn't as very successful, owns a, a publicly traded company now called Park, Ohio was a regular at the Cax Cafe. He used to always come in and do business at the Cax Cafe. And he just always liked us, you know? And he said, you know, Michael, if you guys ever do anything on your own, I'll, I'll come and see I'll me. Back. So <laughs> I'm like, we, we had $135,000. We figured that we needed 250,000 to open the restaurant, to get it to going. buy Correct. an existing yeah. restaurant, to get the liquor license, put the hood in. Like, you know, now it costs millions to open a restaurant, but this is 97 in Cleveland and in, in a very rough neighborhood. So I, I reach out to Mr. Crawford and he says, come meet me at the office, you know, in two days. So he was like, tell me what you want to do. And we'll, we'll figure something out. I said, okay. So Liz, Doug, and I literally don't sleep for two days. We put together projections and everything that, you know, like a book, like this big, like this big, thick 30 page book of what the restaurant's going to be, what it's going to, what, what's going to happen, how it's going to work. Right. And I go into his office by myself and I sit down at his desk and I hand him the Lola Performa, like, here's how this is going to work. He looks at it. He goes, is the restaurant going to succeed? I said, I think it's going to succeed. He takes the Performa that we've been working on for two days and had slept and throws it in the garbage can. Oh, my goes, gosh. How much money do you need? I said, I think about $125,000. 
He goes, you're going to need more than that. Calls his secretary, says, Mike, write Michael a check for $200,000. Oh, my gosh. He goes, all okay. right, Michael, this is how this is going to work. You're going to write me a check for $200,000. You have 10 years to pay me back $400,000, but you don't have to sign personally. I don't care about, like, if it doesn't work, it's my loss, not yours. Wow. You can pick up the check on the way out the door. We'll figure out all the paperwork later. I come <laughs> home and I hand Liz the check. She goes, what's that? I said, Mr. Crawford gave me the check. He said we needed more than 125000 <laughs> We have 10 years to pay it back. Oh, that was and a good Liz deal. Was like, Liz was like, okay. I'm like, okay. And we opened the restaurant and then we paid him back in like four years. And no, that was that. You know, that's amazing. He said, I, he goes, when you get it laid out, I want to pick the table that's mine. I want it every Saturday night. And the only thing I'm going to ask for other than that is the first night I'm there, I'll buy the bottle of Dom, but I want a bottle of Dom chilled at the table. I said, fine, we could do that. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. I mean, it was definitely a family deal bringing this whole thing together when you first started up at Lola, which is the way we we did it here it's just me and my father as business partners here in this business there's nobody else i mean but it was definitely him helping me out you know because i only could come up with a certain amount of money and he was like the one that was like well i like like you i was like i think i need this and he's like no you're going to actually need this much money and he helped me back that and what whatnot but it's it's you know it's funny how they can come in and help out and and it's still a family affair to get that first business up and running um you earn best chef in America being there. And then all of a sudden you, you, in the nineties, we see this explosion of chefs like become rock stars, you know, got Emerald, Bobby, you of course, which is at the top for me. Do you feel fortunate that in your culinary career that it started at this particular time? Yeah. I mean, I just feel lucky. I, you know, I, I think, I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, to be successful, you, you know, you have to work hard. You have to have some kind of a plan and, and, and you have to have some luck, you know, you had to like, I was in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I'm not saying like, look, we surround ourselves with talented people, people that are still with us to this day and incredibly hardworking, dedicated, you know, employees at the time that became basically family members. Um, but, you know, when food and wine came and James Beard came and all those things came, you know, that that never happened in Cleveland prior to us. And I think what happened is once it happened, it was a little bit of lightning in a bottle where they're like, well, we, we never we never included Cleveland in these things. And I became their like golden child a little bit with it. And, and it fortunately, it, you know, it opened up the doors for, uh, you know, a lot of other already great chefs in the city of Cleveland to then also get discovered, you know, like right. when the people from food and wine were coming in and the beer people were coming in and all these different people were coming in, it was like, it just kept opening the door for, you know, like the chefs like Paul Manila who had been there for years and Carl, people got to know a little bit better. And, um, uh, you know, like Jonathan Sawyer and Doug Katz and Karen Small and like all these just really super talented people that, you know, if they were in New York, probably would have got recognized a lot earlier. But, you know, they were in a market that, um, you know, we were a flyover state, basically. Um, right. And then after I won, you know, the food and wine stuff and the beer stuff in 98, Food Network started having me on as a guest. And then, I mean, I remember, like, you know, my, my friends that I grew up with, my best friends, still my best friends today are they're knuckleheads, you know, we're all kind of, you know, <laughs> right. so I get a call before cell phones. I'm at the restaurant and they say, Michael, um, you know, someone's on the phone from food network. And I'm like, okay. And, uh, I'm thinking that they want me to be a guest again on, on Sarah Moulton show. I kept doing Sarah Moulton show at the right. time. And, and I go downstairs and I answer the phone and they're like, uh, Hey, we want you to host this show called the melting pot. We're going to do, you know, some different chefs from around the country. It'll be on once a week, 52 weeks a year, blah, blah, blah. And I immediately thought like, like, because when I started doing stuff on the food network in 98, not as many people watched. It was like Emerald live was just starting to kind of grow. Rachel Ray show didn't exist yet. You know, it was like Emerald Bobby, um, you know, Sarah still had it. No Minx eye. It was just a different network back then. And, but, so when I was on, all my friends would give me grief. So 
when this person from the Food Network, whose name is Eileen Opatot, who at the time was the president of the Food Network, I thought, um, I said to Eileen, fortunately she had a good sense of humor, I'm like, which one of my asshole friends put you up? Who is this? <laughs> like, who's calling me telling me that I have a television show? She's like, pardon me? I'm like, who, uh, who, who, who is this? Like, it's Eileen Opatot from the Food Network. Oh, like, my. I'm trying oh, to God. offer you a show. <laughs> I'm like, oh, shit. It's not one of my friends. Yeah, I'll take the show. <laughs> so, and, you know, it didn't really pay anything back then. Like, you're, you know, it costs more for them to put you up in New York City than they paid you. But, right. it, you know, it taught me another skill and opened more doors. And, um, you know, I just very, very, very fortunate. Like, you know, um, you know, wasn't afraid to work once I got to the table, but right. was very lucky to get through it. I no, I hear you. I mean, uh, and then you went on to be this badass Iron Chef. <laughs> um, I want to ask, like, we'll flip to the beer. Do you remember when you were first exposed to craft beer? Was it back in culinary, later in life? I mean, early 90s? Like, when, when did you first really get your introduction into craft yeah, well, beer? Again, I think being in Cleveland with that was, I would, you know, Great Lakes Brewing Company. Absolutely. Um, 100%. You know, before that whole, like, they opened, I don't know the year that they opened Great Lakes Brewery, but I know that it was significantly ahead of the curve of, craft beer around the country and they were winning gold medals yeah i mean it was it was crazy you okay. know um so we just got really like like the beer that i grew up drinking was the beer that i stole from my the garage that my dad <laughs> you know like pbr uh, or normally like you know if it was my dad just coming home it was stroh's and then okay. when people came over it was Michelob. like oh, that okay. was the fancy beer you know oh. and then you know, once I got into high school, like we drank Little Kings and uh, Mickey's Big okay. Mouth and, you know, like like that kind of stuff. Okay. And then like then I started drinking Red Stripe because I thought I was super fancy. Oh, um, Jamaican and, for beer. And then Great Lakes came out and it was like, whoa, this isn't like beer like we're used to beer. And they rose to prominence in the in I'm going to say it was the early 90s in Cleveland. It was before Lola opened. Um, but then when we started growing, you know, they were right down the street. So we would do beer dinners with food and things like that. And, you know, they, the brewers that came out of their program, they're nationwide now. I oh, mean, yeah. they're everywhere, oh, you know, yes. like their, their family tree is monstrous. Yep. Um, so we got to really like, you could tell them a dish and their, their brewers would then, um, you know, have a good pair with the beer to, that goes with the food, right? Be you good, know, so good at pairing it, yeah, yeah. The exposure that we got was like that's what really changed how I started feeling about beer. Like that was my first big like beer aha moment. I would say that the second huge one came when we, and this isn't nearly as long ago, but came when we opened our Detroit restaurant. Um, you know, which is probably 13, 14 years ago, maybe fifteen years ago now, um, and we got to meet the people at Jolly Pumpkin Ooh. Um, oh, and they okay. were doing all those crazy sour beers. And that just like blew my mind. Like yeah. I was like, what is this? You know, like all these crazy fermentations and tastes and funk. And like, I'm like, Oh my God. Like, so, and, and then I just, I couldn't like, you just get, you get, you, it's like anything else. Like my wife, you know, is, a psalm so she would do all the wine programs and uh, you know wine is great it's fine i mean i <laughs> appreciate it but like right. i like beer i like beer and whiskey that's what i like you know you're, so, you're like me that's yeah, what you i know enjoy. it's like yeah. Yeah, sorry um you know I, i'll drink a rosé on a hot summer day but i'd rather you know but but beer and whiskey is what i enjoy so you know the but i would say that those two breweries were the ones that really influenced like how I would think about beer Craft and how beer, I would think right. about beer with food. And, um, you know, and I mean, now there's just, there's great breweries that are like, it's, it's, there's so much great juice out there. You I know, know. There's, just, there's so many versus, I mean, what it was in the nineties till now. I mean, there's a lot of great options with a lot of people making a lot of good beer. Um, speaking on that, you also hosted a show called Burgers Brew and Q, which I still watch the reruns of, and it was for nine seasons. <laughs> Talk about landing a good gig. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're like, they're literally, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no. they, they were like, 
hey, we want you to do a traveling show, you know, not diners, but somewhere you could go around and taste different things. Like, what, what do you want to do it on? I'm like, I don't know. I would love to do burgers, beer, and barbecue. They're like, okay. I'm like, you're really going to let me do this? Are you shitting me? I get to go around the country, That's eat amazing. hamburgers and barbecue and drink beer? Like, oh, oh my God. Like, somebody, so God loves me. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in... I think that's like an ominous, like magical connection. I mean, when you say between burgers, beer, and barbecue, I mean, I think they just go so well together. I mean, you have, I mean, you had the show on it. I mean, can you expand what you think? I mean, for me, if you have a pairing, I think beer goes great solely. I mean, it goes great with a lot of things, but barbecue and burgers. You know, it was it was a tricky show to do in the sense that that. Um, the food network viewers and I'm making a generalization, right. You know, at the time, um, and even some of the executives at the time, like it was, they've never had a ton of luck with beverage. Like, you know, like when you do beverage, it's, it's always a tougher sell like food. The the people are watching the network to, to learn about food. So it, it was, it was always a little tricky to get as much, beer centric things in there as we can. Um, especially like after we did like the first eight, you know, a select group of people that like to be loud. We heard a lot of like, ah, they, they talk about alcohol too much. And, you know, you know, like there was a lot of that kind of stuff. So we were a little bit more cautious moving forward, but, but it was like, it was a great learning experience because we would always try to the perfect world. If you would find a brewery that make great food, like, right. you know, like you could find some of those places, but it, the worst case scenario is you would go to an, an area where there were a lot of great restaurants and a great brewery, you know, and um, and the closer we could come to when we went to a restaurant and we would get the food from there, then the beer was local and we could match it up perfectly with what we were eating. Right. That was always our perfect world. It didn't always work, but, um, you know, I think we did a, a pretty good job with it. We, we did the show for four years so i think that was eight or nine seasons and you know like probably 60 episodes so and then we did three places an episode so you know we you know basically tried 180 different beers and you know and and barbecue and and and, uh and burgers i gained 15 pounds but i was so happy (laughs) i was i was i was literally the definition of fat and happy (laughs) that's amazing man i i kind of have a two-parter here um have you ever taken a crack at homebrewing your own beer? Yeah, I failed miserably. <laughs> I, it was, um, you know, the timing of when I tried to do it probably wasn't great. I was traveling a lot for work and doing a million different other things. And, you know, I'm like, like saying to like, look, could you watch this for me? Right. You know, um, <laughs> I know, you know, you're home running the restaurants and bored, but when you're not doing all those things, could you keep an eye on my little beer project? Right. The fermentations. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and Kyle was younger at the time, so there was all that. Um, you know, I'm, it's probably something I'm going to get back into now that I'm in my elder years. Uh-huh. Uh, when I have a little bit more time and the travel schedule isn't quite as hectic. It's, you know, my, my thing is with anything I do, like, it's hard for me to do anything and not, like, if I don't, if I'm not really good at it right away, I, I, I'm not going to lie, I get aggravated. Like, I, I'm like, well okay, I just made beer. It's, it's about a 10th. It's not even as good as the stuff that I used to steal from my father when I was a kid. So why am I doing this? Like there's people that are really, really good at this. You know, it's like the reason that I love to cook and do barbecue is, is like, I'm good at it. And I was good at it the minute I started, you know, it's like, I love to garden. My garden is spectacular. You know, like Martha Stewart loves my garden, you know, but it, I was good at it right out of the gate. Like I figured it out right away. Where you know my first run at home brewing was an absolute failure, um, so I, I need to convince myself that the failure was because of lack of time, not because of my own stupidity. And then I will probably jump back in and try it again. I hear you. Well, hey, next time you're in Miami, you can come by, and we'd be happy to give you some instructional, and uh, maybe we can work on a beer collab. Yes, absolutely. We can we can that give you a breakdown. Perfect. Yes, absolutely. We love you. Too. And I'm. I'm very receptive to coaching. Okay. So. <laughs> John is a good coach. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what they say, but we'd be happy for you to come by and work on a beer with us. Um, I got one last question for you. This is coming from the way of my uh, 
my producer, being a Clevelander, who's a better tipper, LeBron or Drew Carey? <laughs> oh, that's good. You know, LeBron, so I first met LeBron when he was in high school, you know, right. because he they were already trying to get him to, you know, Nike, like he would, they'd feed him at the restaurants and became a, a really great customer after that. Um, always was incredibly supportive of our restaurants. We do tons of, we've done a lot of charitable work together over the years. And when he was in Cleveland full time, we would cater stuff at his house and do dinners at his house. He was um, actually Katie and my culinary directors sitting right next to me. And she would be the first time. He was always a great tipper. I don't know where the thing came out that LeBron wasn't a great tipper. It was total nonsense. Like he always, <laughs> like when you would do an event at his house, you know, like a catering event, yeah. you charge for the food, you charge for the labor, you put the tip in. And he would come in and cash dupe everybody after oh, that, nice. awesome. you know? So, so he, I don't know where that came from. Um, you know, since our restaurants have opened, Drew's been in LA. So like, he's probably been in once or twice. I'm not a hundred percent certain to be honest. I've met him a couple times, but, um, so I can't really, I I'm assuming he's a good tipper. I think Clevelanders in general, are pretty good tippers. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I'm assuming he's a good tipper, but I can vouch for LeBron. That LeBron's a great tipper. That's and amazing. anybody that says otherwise, I think that was like, you know, there were some Clevelanders that got red ass when he came to Miami. So they had, to, they couldn't, they couldn't think of anything bad to say about the guy. It's like, okay, he's a bad this tipper. guy was on the cover of sports illustrated in high school. Yeah got dubbed the king actually exceeded the expectations that people set on him, which never exists is with his high school. Sweetheart is his now wife with his beautiful children. And he probably does more charitable work than any athlete in the history of sports. We got, Oh, he must be a bad tipper. (laughs) He's He's a great tipper. Oh, well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, when you do get back to Cleveland, I hope you enjoyed the beers that we sent you. Yeah. Um, we sent a lot of sours. So. Yes, we sent sours. I know, we sent my, my wife, my wife Liz, she's she's still there taking care of some family stuff, and she sent me the big picture of our, the fridge there. Nice. I'm like, I'm always in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> and the invitation is open, and we'll uh, we'll have Rocco you know, join up with your people about when you come back to Miami about coming by and uh, let's get together on a beer. But I do. Uh, I love that. I, I not only are we going to get together to have a beer, but I'm going to take you up on, on picking your brain and getting absolutely. some knowledge so I can do home brewing 2.0. I'm uh, I'm definitely very up to uh, do whatever I can to help you out, Michael. Thank you very much for coming on Thank the show you so and for much. your time. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks guys. Have a great day. You, you too. too. <laughs> bye. Go Browns. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye. And that's it for this week. I'd like to thank my guests, Peter Oates and Michael Simon, my co-host, Maria Cabre, and my producer, Rocco Riggio. Thanks for listening. We're here each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturday at 8 p.m., Sunday at 1 p.m., and next Friday at 2 a.m. You can also find repeat episodes on the SiriusXM app. Remember, people, the thirst is real.